0: Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer, and more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, During each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And I hope after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Here we are, appropriately enough, on Library Street. The sun's shining on us today. We're about to meet up with one of the most formidable storytellers of our age. Bold claim? Not really, when you consider that his books have sold an astonishing 160 million copies. Yes, that was 160 million. Can't really argue with that. Ken Follett has come a long way from his childhood home here in Cardiff. In many ways, that journey toward becoming one of the world's most successful writers began right here in the very handsome library after which this road is named. What say we venture inside splendid Canton Library then, where senior librarian Rian Jones is waiting for us? Let's get talking with Ken Follett. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Rian, thank you also. Ken, this is your childhood library, but nevertheless, I have to ask, of all the libraries, bookshops in the world, you immediately chose this one. Can you tell us why and perhaps describe the place a little also for our listeners?
1: Well, I was seven years old when I joined this library. I learned to read early and effortlessly, and it became a huge pleasure for me. And that's partly because some of the regular pleasures were denied me. My family, for puritanical reasons, did not go to the theatre or the movies. We didn't have a TV. We didn't go to football matches or anything like that. And so really, reading was the only pleasure that was allowed. And I read a lot and quickly... And books were expensive. My family wasn't particularly poor, but a book was either two and six or five shillings. And young families in the 50s in Britain did not have very much disposable income. So I would get books for my birthday and books for Christmas. And that was the only time people gave me books. And then I discovered this place. Mm. Free books, unlimited free books forever. It was like... Christmas every day the first big thrill of my life was joining this library
0: <laughs> and I'm interested to know in your very religious home and upbringing why you had carte blanche to read whatever you liked even though it was very confined in terms of the music you were listening to I know you read the bible or were made to read the bible no bad thing as you've pointed out to get to know it, but you could read whatever you liked? There was no restrictions there for you? It's very strange. I mean, it probably didn't matter in
1: the children's library. There was nothing in the children's library. uh, Sadly, nothing to deprave (laughs) and corrupt me in the children's library. But I got to the age of 12... By which time we'd moved to London, it was a different public library. And I started to read James Bond. And and looking back, I cannot understand why they permitted that. It may have been that they thought that anything in print was okay. I don't know. And my parents are dead now and I can't ask them. But even then, and you know, when I was borrowing James Bond, when I was 12, i was allowed into the adult library in London, suburb of London called Kenton. And theoretically, they were supposed to check what I was borrowing because I was a kid using the adult library, but they never did. So I read James Bond and somehow nobody minded. Mm. And boy, did I like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rhiann, could you talk to the history of this place? It's a very, very beautiful building.
2: It is an absolutely beautiful, stunning building and uh, the philanthropist Andrew Carnegie donated money. I think it was quite a lot of money, it was about £5,000 at the time. And this was built on an old market and we got Market Street near Canton Chapter Arts. Theatre. And we're Um, on Library Street, of course. We're on Library Street, which is great. Yes, it's just such a stunning library. There's two Carnegie libraries. They were both opened on the same day. So they opened the Cate's library and then they came down by trams to open this one up. And like you say, it's a free library. And Carnegie was inspired because he had the barrier of not being able to afford membership. And when he got wealthy, he promised that he would give the children, you know, boys and girls, the ability to enter the world of books, you know, which is uh, his key thing.
0: For any listeners who don't know much about Andrew Carnegie, he built nearly 3,000 libraries. This is one of 3,000 that he built. There are 660 in the UK, 24 in Wales and they extend otherwise to Fiji, Malaysia, South Africa. But he notably gave away 90% of his wealth. He was quite a ruthless man. He was a bit of a robber baron, ruthless in his business practices, but equally ruthless in terms of his philanthropy. And he's still regarded as the greatest philanthropist ever. And he said, as you pointed out, Rianne, that it stems from his childhood. He said, if ever wealth came to me, it should be used to establish free libraries that other poor boys might receive opportunities similar to those for which we were indebted to that noble man who was a guy called Colonel Anderson who opened his home up every weekend and Carnegie was amongst the boys and girls who would go and choose a book from the 400 books. And he said he had an intense longing for a new book. Each weekend would bring one of these books and he reveled in those treasures. And Ken, now you've said, again, as you just explained, that you didn't have many books of your own And without free books, I would not have become a voracious reader. And if you are not a reader, you are not a writer. So there are obviously quite similar hallmarks, and you guys are two very notable celebrated examples, and there are plenty of people across the world who've experienced similar things. But this Carnegie legacy really was huge for you, and it's very much in keeping with what he was trying to do.
1: Yes, absolutely. I was in Reims in France a few weeks ago, And I saw this very beautiful library and I said, I bet that's a Carnegie library. The the library in Rance is an Art Deco building. This is a Victorian building that we're in now. The one in Rance is a beautiful Art Deco building. And I said, I bet that's a Carnegie library. And we went over and looked and there's a plaque saying in French Mm. that this was paid for by Andrew Carnegie. When you first sit down to write a novel or a short story as an adult, out of school and everything, I found that I already knew 90% of what I needed to know about writing a novel. And it's because I had read so many from such a young age. And all the writers I know are the same. They all were voracious readers from a young age. And that's how you learn what a sentence is, what a paragraph is or a chapter. And you learn about describing things, landscapes and people and buildings. You learn about cliffhangers, surprises in stories, as you're writing as a novelist you just remember things that delighted you in novels that you've read and you realize yes I must do that I must do surprises I must Mm. do cliffhangers I must do suspense I must describe things in a way that not only tells you what they look like but what they feel like what the atmosphere is like all that you get because you read novels and books costing what they did in the 1950s and you know the income of an ordinary family being what it was i would not have read all these books if i hadn't
0: joined this library mm. And it is a very welcoming sanctuary as well. When you walk into this place, it's very light, as you pointed out, Ken. It is now. It was a bit more
1: forbidding in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> it's a you know, it's a Victorian building, and it wasn't particularly light. And there were notices up saying silence. And oh really? Ads. Oh yes. Oh, no squawking yes. back then. It was yeah. No. Oh no no, I don't think they encouraged toddlers to join in those <laughs> days. Uh, I think I was pretty young, joining at the age of seven. Mm. The whole campaign that the nation has had to encourage children to read at younger and younger ages and so on, and that, all of that was unknown. In fact, my love of books was considered a possible health hazard. You know, doctors would say to me, do you go out and play as well as reading all these books? <laughs> and of course I did. <laughs> but... Um, The ethos that we have now, that children must be introduced to books and pictures and words and so on as early as possible, I don't think that existed in the 50s, no.
0: Although it may have been a bit gloomier then, I know that Carnegie, on the very first library that he opened in Dunfermline, there's a sign saying, let there be light above the door. That one opened in 1883, and he wanted these places to engender enlightenment, and they were generally constructed with high windows. Vaulted ceilings, ornate designs. The architectural style, as you point out, varies to the area, which again, it's in keeping with the community, which is fantastic as well. They often have lights outside them as well. But when I was arriving here earlier, having not been here before, I thought it was a church at first because I was looking out the window and it looks like a very beautiful neo-Gothic church. And in some ways it, of course, is. But it leads us into your newest work, which is about Notre Dame. This is a concise, very elegant and, I have to say, sort of thrilling journey that you paint. We go inside Notre Dame. It was inspired by events earlier this year for obvious reasons, but perhaps you would kindly read a short passage, Ken, and then we can talk a bit more about it, if that's okay. Of course. The Cathedral of Notre Dame was too small in
1: 1163. The population of Paris was growing, On the right bank of the river, commerce was surging to levels unknown in the rest of medieval Europe. And on the left bank, the university was attracting students from many countries. Between the two, on an island in the river, stood the cathedral. And Bishop Maurice de Sully felt it should be bigger. And there was something else. The existing building was in the round-arched style we call Romanesque but there was an exciting new architectural movement that used pointed arches, letting more light into the building, a look now called Gothic. This style had been pioneered only six miles from Notre Dame, at the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis, burial place of the French kings, which had brilliantly combined several technical and visual innovations. As well as the pointed arch, it featured piers of clustered shafts sprouting ribs up into a high vault that was lighter in weight, a semicircular walkway at the east end to keep pilgrims moving past the relics of Saint-Denis, and outside, graceful flying buttresses that facilitated larger windows and made the massive church look as if it were about to take flight. Sully must have seen the new church of Saint-Denis and become enamoured of it. No doubt it made Notre-Dame look old-fashioned. Perhaps he was even a little jealous of Abbot Suger at Saint-Denis, who had encouraged two successive master masons to experiment boldly with triumphantly successful results. So, Sully ordered his cathedral to be knocked down and
0: replaced by a Gothic church. Thank you. And I have to say, what is so great about this pithy new book, all of his proceeds go to the charity La Fondation du Patron I is that you write in this precise, concise way about Notre Dame's construction, legacy, but it has the same, understandably being written by you with your voice, but it has the same narrative drive, plotting eye for detail that you deploy in your novels, especially, of course, The Pillars of the Earth. We can talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but I'm curious how you heard about the fire. I know how you heard from the book, but perhaps you'd explain to the listeners the very dramatic days that followed. April the
1: 15th, I was at home in the kitchen with Barbara, my wife, and we had just finished supper. And the phone rang, and it was an old friend. In fact, it was Yvette Cooper, Member of Parliament, Mm. who is an old friend and also a great political ally of Barbara's. And she said, I'm in Paris, turn on your TV. And of course we did. You know what we saw. We saw the great cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris in flames. Terrific sort of shocking moment. I mean, she said it's on fire, but of course that could mean anything. And when we actually saw those flames, it was just terrible. I spent the evening in front of the TV watching what was happening, but I was also following on social media. And I realised that the journalists covering this for television and radio didn't know what was burning. In fact, one of them asked the question, it's a stone building, how can it be on fire? And I knew the answer. Yes. Because while researching the pillars of the earth, I'd gone up into the roofs of cathedrals mm-hmm. In fact, in the Pillars of the Earth, the old cathedral burns. And so I had invented a fictional fire in a cathedral in the Pillars of the Earth, and so I knew how it could happen. And so I tweeted very simply what was happening, that the roof timbers were on fire. You've probably been up in the loft of your own house and seen that the roof is made of wood. There are horizontal rafters and angled
0: roof beams. It was clear to me that that was what was burning in Notre Dame. You knew pretty much immediately what would be occurring in there because of your research and you'd effectively already written it in a fictional sense.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And then, of course, once those massive timbers have burned and started to weaken, then the actual roof begins to collapse. And that, in the case of Notre Dame, it's made of lead tiles. And so all of that debris then collapses, falls through the ceiling, the curved, vaulted ceiling of the cathedral. When you're standing in the nave and you look up, you see those ribs and the triangles in between the ribs. Yeah. You see that. Well, of course, when the lead and the burning timbers fall on that, they crash through it. And they may then also destroy the pillars. So that was clearly what was happening. And I guess I was the first person to say that in a clear way. Because, I mean, many people know more about cathedrals than I do.
0: Well, you, you say that, but I know that you were invested as an officier in the Order des Arts et des Lettres prior to this. So you're a Francophile. And, of course, you're being modest, but... You are a world authority in cathedrals, and in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a statue of you outside the Cathedral of Santa Maria. (laughs) So you're being a little modest. I think you're perfectly positioned to speak to this. And then, of course, also as a storyteller and someone who's lived and breathed the process, as we've already heard so evocatively described in your extract, and the way you're talking about immediately seeing how this is unfolding in a sort of forensic way, You became something of a spokesman or sort of an interpreter for people all around the world, didn't you? I mean, I saw you on the news. Yes. First of all,
1: explaining what I've just explained about the fire. But also, of course, because the other thing that I thought about a great deal when I was writing The Pillars of the Earth is the meaning of cathedrals to us spiritually. I was very interested in them materially. I was very interested in how they were built and how the masons worked and where the money came from and all that sort of thing. Very interested in that. But there is something else and there is something. The enterprise of building one of those great churches was not merely a material thing. I've compared the building of a cathedral to a moonshot and that's partly because although everything technical about a moonshot is fascinating and it's leading-edge technology and costs a fortune. Ultimately, there's not enough motivation to go to the moon. Mm. Ultimately, we don't do it because of the technical advances it brings and all that. Ultimately, we do it because human beings have to reach out like that to something, something special, something that isn't just material. And I think when they built the cathedrals, that was what they were doing, as well as creating a building that would be used as a conference centre and a tourist attraction and all sorts of other things. They were also, medieval people also had the sense, as we have, that we want to reach for something that's, as it were, beyond the material life.
0: And, of course, some of this must come from, again, the upbringing around the corner from here and the religiosity of that. It um, must, mustn't it? I inside mean, inside of, of you yes. as well. It must have been quite... Well, I know, again, you describe it very vividly. It was an emotional moment because I think you say that Notre Dame had always seemed eternal, yes. much in the same terms that you're talking about. Yes. And so for you to see, having thought so much and visited so many cathedrals, it must have been quite something. There's actually a short section in A Column of Fire, the third novel in the Kingsbridge series, Ned Willard, your protagonist, returns home. And I'll read a short, if you don't mind. Please. Paragraph. He looked out of the parlor window across the market square to the elegant facade of the great church with its long lines of lancet windows and pointed arches. It had been there every day of his life. Only the sky above it changed with the seasons. It gave him a vague but powerful sense of reassurance. People were born and died. Cities could rise and fall. Wars began and ended... But Kingsbridge Cathedral would last until the Day of Judgment. So that must, surely a bit like your character Ned, that must have been the consternation or the confounding. It's the sort of nightmarish sight, isn't it? Yes. The nightmare has come of something that's not possible is coming true. Yes, yes, that's right. People feel
1: it in an earthquake. How can the earth be moving? The earth is the one thing that's always still. It is that kind of feeling allegorically as well as really. The ground beneath your feet seems to be moving when a building like that burns. Yeah.
0: There, of course, have been fires of ravaged libraries too, most infamously the Alexandrian Library. There's a wonderful book by Susan Orlean, which came out earlier in this year, called The Library Book, which explores the big fire in L.A. public library during the 1980s, which is the biggest fire in the States, over 400,000 books were lost, and she explores yeah. libraries and what they mean through the prism of the fire. There was a fire here, I understand, Rian, yes. as well.
2: Somebody broke in and tried to steal a computer and was unsuccessful, and he burnt the place down. He went to prison for...
0: He, as arson?
2: Yes, he was an arsonist, yeah.
0: When was that?
2: I think it was in the 1990s, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: And there are a few signs of this outside. You pointed out remnants of the fire in terms of how the building is now being renovated since.
2: Yeah, it, it has changed from the original features, but they did an amazing job. The council poured a lot of money into the library and it is as it is now, you know, very beautiful. Good for them. So, yes.
0: And, Ken, what do you make, finally, on Notre Dame and the fire, what do you make of the plans and the reconstruction, the aftermath? There's been some controversy in France. Macron's, as you point out in the book, Macron decreed it should take five years. When you're talking about lunar landings, etc., and all the immense decades, centuries of work that goes into the cathedrals as you've laid bare over the years, what do you make of the plans now?
1: Well, I was privileged to go inside, Notre Dame a few weeks ago and interview the architect whose name is Philippe Villeneuve, the architect who's in charge of the reconstruction. And uh, what they're doing at the moment, you can see actually now from the outside that they're putting timber reinforcements underneath flying buttresses and in the window spaces, because if they don't do that, then the structure will move because all the stresses have changed because the roof is now not pressing down on the walls. The buttresses press the walls inwards to balance the weight of the roof. But now that the roof's gone, they would move. The walls would tilt inwards, and so they have to be braced. All of those empty bits have got to be kept to their original shape until the rebuilding gets going. It's going to be a heck of a job to finish it in five years. I mean, it was a wonderful moment, I thought, when the president of France said on TV that evening, in fact, on the 15th of April, nous rebâtirons moving, moving moment, actually, we will rebuild, he said. The French are not like us in that they don't mind spending a fortune on public works. You can tell, drive around France and look at the viaducts and bridges and so on, which are just fantastic. If they want to do something like that, they'll find the money. So they may yet do it, but it's going to be awfully difficult. They will restore it almost 100% to what it was. But they're talking about, and I think it's quite nice, they're talking about perhaps it will have one feature that's completely modern. Mm. A bit like in the courtyard of the Louvre now, in all those 18th century and Renaissance buildings, in the middle there's the glass pyramid. I think the architect's was IMP for that. And it's stunning. It's a completely modern feature in the middle of a traditional building. And that can sort of work, in fact, Ville Le Duc, when he restored Notre Dame in the 19th century, he built that very narrow spire that they call la fleche, the dart it means. And that really wasn't medieval at all, that spire. And so he added what was then something rather modern to his restoration of a medieval cathedral. And I think they'll do something like that. It won't be one of the bizarre ideas that, have been put forward like putting a swimming pool on the roof, (laughs) that sort of thing. It won't be dopey, but there may be just one feature. The one I like is the one in which they restore the spire, but they have a a laser beam going out of the top of it, a bright white laser beam going up ad infinitum, Mm. up into outer space. And I like that idea because it's not at all intrusive. And it is absolutely representative of the spirit of a cathedral, the reaching for the heavens of a cathedral. That's my favourite. I don't think they've decided and they don't need to decide for years yet. But I think we can be pretty sure that, by and large, it will look as near to the original as possible.
0: And all proceeds from the book go towards that endeavour? or? Well, in fact,
1: that was the original idea. This book was my French publisher's idea. And she said, we will give out all our profits from the book to the rebuilding fund. And I said, and I'll do the same with my royalties. By the time I had finished the book, the building fund already had a billion euros. Yes. And so she said, well, let's give the money to the Fondation de Patrimoine, which looks after all the ancient buildings in France. I see. And so that's what we're doing now. And, in fact, I'm going to hand over a cheque for 100,000 euros in about a month's time. Wow. And that'll that'll just be the beginning. There'll be lots more. So all of those ancient buildings in France that I really love to go and visit
0: will get a little boost from my book. That's fantastic. (laughs) And you've written that the cathedral is about what people can achieve when they work together. You're obviously doing your part there and then some. You also write in the book about cathedral visitors, be they today's tourists, yesteryears, pilgrims, traveling for the same reasons, which I was quite struck by. And you, you describe those as to see the world and its marvels, to broaden their minds, to educate themselves, and perhaps to come in touch with something miraculous, otherworldly, eternal. I'd like to think that libraries and cathedrals both serve those purposes. And there is obviously here in this beautiful quite church-like library, there's a lot of common ground between those institutions or yes. those human monuments, cathedrals yeah. and libraries. I can't think of many other public edifices or expressions of the human spirit or statements of intent by us as a species that work in the same sort of way. But maybe I'm missing something. But that seems well, that I'm a bit partisan about libraries, obviously. But it's
1: very interesting you should say that because... You probably don't remember the passage from Hunchback of Notre Dame in which Victor Hugo says the cathedral is a library. Oh, wow. And he said for medieval people who could not read, they would go into the cathedral and everywhere there were images that told them stories. I mean, they're obviously abbreviated stories, but a cathedral is full of statues and sometimes paintings and sometimes decorated fabrics that show you the characters in the bible adam and eve and the serpent and noah and all the prophets and then the new testament characters jesus and the disciples and then the saints And to us ignorant people in the 21st century, these statues all look the same, but there is an iconography to them. If you know the iconography, you know which saint is which. Each of the saints has something in his hands which tells you which saint he is, and that would course bring back to people the story of that saint usually the story how the saint died often i think it's i forget these things now i think saint stephen is the one who's got an arrow sticking in him saint jerome always has a book saint peter has the keys and so on so the inside of a cathedral wasn't merely decorative all of those symbols would bring to medieval people's minds the bible stories that they had
0: heard Mm, because both Spaces are really about the exchange of ideas or stories down the ages, our shared histories, and being able to access them in a spiritual or a mindful place or space, interior or exterior. It was like Stephen Hawking's
1: book, A Brief History of Time. That tells you how the universe began, how it developed, how we came into it, and how it's going to end. (laughs) And, of course, the Bible story, as depicted in images in a great church, tells you the earlier version of how the universe began, how we came to be in it, and how it's going to end. (laughs) There
0: we go. If I may, I might read one further short segment of your work. This is another little passage I was struck by in the context of this conversation we're having. This is from The Pillars of the Earth, and you frame there one of the protagonists, Tom's, Passion for cathedrals, very beautifully. This is what you wrote. The walls of a cathedral had to be not just good, but perfect. This was because the cathedral was for God, and also because the building was so big that the slightest lean in the walls, the merest variation from the absolutely true and level, could weaken the structure fatally. See, Ken, here's the thing. I see you as the master builder, because what he's describing there for me, sounds very similar to the architecture and devotion that you pour into your narratives and your characters and the way you combine the granular and period details and epic history and romance and intrigue and interpersonal conflicts all played out through lifetimes, hopes and dreams. You're a master builder yourself. It's an interesting comparison, <laughs>
1: certainly. Um, Sorry, I, do I don't know quite
0: how you were meant to respond to that, but that's well. That I, was I my start with a I
1: start with a plan, as a builder always does. Yeah. Start with the you know, first thing you have to do is make the plan before you do anything else. Not all authors do that, but most authors say that they know the beginning and the end of the story before they begin. But a lot of people say that how the story moves from the beginning to the end is something that they, as it were, discover as they're writing. And I'm not like that at all. I spent a long time planning the
0: architecture. You're yes. quite right. It's, yes. it's a very appropriate image to use. Because everything has to be in its perfect position, otherwise the whole yes. will fall apart. Or Yes. There's a logic to a good story that is very
1: similar to the principles of construction in a building. You know, the walls have to be straight, otherwise they will fall down, and the story... Has to be logical. Otherwise, people will readers will say, Wait a minute, that couldn't have happened. And then you mm. lost them. And works of art aren't perfect, especially mine. But you strive for perfection because you don't want to lose that reader. You don't want that reader to be popped out of the story by saying, Wait a minute, I know something about the 16th century and that couldn't possibly have happened.
0: Yes, because that reader would be as ruthless as in terms of consuming. The literature as you were here as a kid or you know if you'd weren't into the book then you're going to quickly yes not discard it but lose interest etc and it's still those antennae that probably were as you're writing these and thinking of that reader not your obviously not your childhood self but i know that when you accepted your cbe you said the honor was about doing something that you love making books and stories as entertaining and accessible as possible reading is a hugely important part of my life and i'm glad to have helped others to enjoy it too and that again speaks to what your motivation is and where you're aiming for, because it's not easier said than done, and you've sold over one hundred and sixty five million copies of your of your novels, so you're a real master at, at it. It's a real skill. Yes, and it takes a lot of different
1: things. You have to get a lot of different things right in order to make sure that you get that reader's attention and keep hold of it. For a long time, you know, I admire the writers of television drama because it's so easy to turn the TV off or switch to another channel. If you get bored for 10 seconds, Mm. you're tempted to change the channel. Now, we've got a little bit more leeway in literature because holding a book in your hand or on your iPad is a bit more of a commitment than turning the telly on and off. But still, you don't want somebody to be reading the book because they think they ought to or because they've started it and now they jolly well ought to finish it. You want them to be reading the book because they can't stop. Yes, They don't want to return to normal life. They don't want to turn the light out and go to sleep. and They don't want the plane to land or the train to arrive in the station. That's what you're looking for. And the emails from readers that I prize the most are the ones that say, I gave up on reading. I hadn't read for 10 years, but then somebody gave me The Pillars of the Earth, and it's got me back to reading again, and now I read all the time again. Wow. I mean, that's enormously pleasing to me. And I do think there are rather too many books in the bookshops and I guess in the libraries that don't enchant people in that way. If you read half a dozen books that don't work for you, you begin to think about all of the other ways in which you can spend your evening. You can stream wonderful television drama. You can go to the pub. You can play computer games. You can surf the net. There are so many rivals to literature for the attention of a
0: person at leisure at home. Although if you were a fan of yours, you could, of course, play Pillars of the Earth, computer game, board game, <laughs> watch yes. the the TV, very good TV <laughs> well, series of, of it. Uh, the funny thing about Pillars of the Earth is that you'd already achieved huge success when you came to write it, and it was obviously understandably seen as a departure and something of a gamble by the team around you when you said, okay, my next book will be about the building of a cathedral in the middle ages it's going to be 375,000 words or a thousand pages not obviously commercial material on paper and yet you've said it's probably your best book and certainly your most successful the statistics are astonishing when the times newspaper asked its readers to vote for the 60 greatest novels of the last 60 years pillars of the earth was placed at number two after killing mockingbird it's the most popular ever title on oprah's book club and it was voted the third greatest book ever written by a quarter of a million Germans in a poll. This is astonishing. And yet, when you sat down to write it, it was obviously something you really felt very passionately about. It was a bit of a gamble. And again, in terms of the process of you as an author, do you think that perhaps that moment in your life, and your career, you'd already achieved huge success, but... You'd honed your craft, but the fact that you were then to harness it with something that was perhaps more personal but also out on a limb, do you think that led to it becoming, as you've described it, your best, perhaps your best book?
1: I think you're probably right, yes. I think because it was so difficult, it drew out of me stuff that I didn't know that I could do. I made the decision that it had to be a long book simply because of the theme. The theme is the building of a cathedral, and everybody knows that that takes a long time, many years sometimes. Decades. So, having made that decision, I then had to work my imagination extraordinarily hard. One of the things I did, I made a list of all the things that had ever gone wrong in the building of medieval cathedrals. And then I made them all happen to Kingsbridge Cathedral. That was part of my technique. But of course, you have in the Pillars of the Earth a group of people who go through a a series of dramas. And the easy way to do that is when you want to bring in and start a new drama, you bring in some more characters. And that's not the best way to do it because the reader is interested in the people she or he met in the first 50 or 100 pages Mm. and really doesn't want, on page 250, really doesn't want to be introduced to two or three completely new people. So the challenge is to think of more things that can happen and more ways in which dramas can happen to the same group of people that was very hard and the only time in my life that I've felt what might be called imagination fatigue was when I finished the pillars of the earth I sort of thought my goodness I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to write anything again Right. And you really felt that? I really felt my imagination had done its, its life's work and it was finished. Now, wasn't true, happily. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the challenge and the difficulty of writing the book actually made me a better
0: writer. Hmm. I understand that you are working on a prequel. You, of course, wrote two follow-up novels or subsequent novels in the series, World Without End, A Column of Fire. Do you feel the same risk or obligation or pressure? You have so many readers out there, legions of fans for these books and your others, but these in particular, do you feel pressure still going back in, taking it on again to live up to that imagination fatigue and everything you poured into pillars? I always feel that. Did it get easier after World Without End, which was, that must have felt like quite a big ask, or not ask, but quite a big assignment after the wild success of pillars of the earth or not
1: well see there's a logical answer and an emotional answer and the logical answer is of course i know that after doing this for 40 years i'm better than i was 40 years ago and i've learned skills i've learned a lot it's practically the whole of my life i've learned a lot about literature and the emotional answer to your question is no i do not feel confident that the book I've just finished, which is the one you mentioned, the prequel to The Pillars of the Earth, I don't feel confident that that's going to be a huge success. And I won't until the paying customers have started to send me messages saying, I just read your new book. And I think it's great. And they might not do that. You know, it's... It's, it's, that's when you know that you've done That's when a, I know I've done a yeah, good job. When I get messages from readers, before my books are published, they're read by quite a lot of people, my editors, my historical advisors, my friends and family. I get a lot of advice, but the paying customers are a new category, and they are the ones I'm trying to please. Mm. I don't believe it until I actually see the evidence. and That's not rational, and I do, on a rational level, have confidence in myself, but at an emotional level I don't.
0: But they also, in the Kingsbridge series, they leap forward or perhaps backwards now, but centuries. They're not segueing straight into, which I suppose mitigates some of that and also allows obviously a fresh period for you to get into. So there's lots of reasons for it, but perhaps that also allows for more leeway. And it makes sense on many levels, but perhaps wouldn't be the obvious thing again on the back of pillars of the earth to jump forward as you have a a column of fire as well, but perhaps that allows for space for each of them to stand alone as well. Well, when I thought about writing World Without End, I began to think about that
1: because when I would give talks in libraries and bookshops and always, you know, at the end I would leave long time for questions because that's what they like, that's what people in the audience like best of all. And sooner or later somebody would stand up and say, I like your books very much, and the one I like best is The Pillars of the Earth, and then the others would applaud. Mm. Now, that's a message. You know? Yes. <laughs> As an author who's committed to enchanting people, that is a message. And so I began to think about it. Now, I couldn't write a sequel to The Pillars of the Earth that involved the same characters because that book tells you the story of the entire life of most of the characters. Some of them are dead by the end, and those who aren't are are pretty old. So there wasn't another book to be written. And also, the building of that church was the most important thing that ever happened to them. So anything else in their lives would be a damp squib by comparison. So the normal type of sequel wasn't possible. And so that's why I decided to write about the same town 200 years in the future and what's happened now is that kingsbridge has sort of become the place where i tell the story of what was happening to england and it is england in those it wasn't britain in those days and so what happens to the country i read i get interested in a historical period some great historical drama like like the spanish armada the reformation and i think i could make a story out of this and then i think now If I set it in Kingsbridge, we'll have the drama. It may be a global historical drama, but the story is about how it affected half a dozen people. And those half a dozen people might as well be in Kingsbridge as anywhere else. And that gives me a town that I've already created and a cathedral at its centre, which readers are familiar with, and a past. The town has a past that many readers will remember. So that's how the whole business of writing again and again about Kingsbridge came up. It's actually, I'm writing about different things each time. Mm. World Without End is about the Black Death, and the book I've just finished is about the end of the Dark Ages and the beginning of the Middle Ages, so it's about the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings and the Normans. But it takes place in Kingsbridge, and it's just become a very what seems to me to be quite an effective
0: way to tell the story of England by telling the story of Kingsbridge. Yes, and you've done it superbly. And it is very satisfying and lovely for readers to know the lineage of the characters better than the actual characters do yes. <laughs> uh, in this and also your Century trilogy. And again, the sustained storytelling over the course of the ages, of the history of the country is remarkable. I'm curious, though, whether you... Yourself are someone who has looked into ancestral links and has a similar sort of interest in lineage, etc. On a, on more personal levels, is this something that's because there's a, obviously it's very popular pastime for people in libraries or such oracles for local communities to discover these hidden secret histories, etc. But is this something of any interest to you?
1: I'm not as it were, obsessed with it. My wife, Barbara, quite likes looking into our ancestry. She discovered, actually, that my grandfather's grandfather, here in Cardiff, actually, signed his marriage certificate with a cross. So my grandfather's grandfather was illiterate. Hmm. That was quite interesting. (laughs) I mean, that is uh, one, two, three, four generations ago,
0: my ancestor couldn't read. Wow. Well, I know, of course, adult literacy does remain quite an issue, In the country, I think one in six adults still has major problems reading. It's quite shocking. It's not immediately obvious
1: to you because most people can write their name and can recognise some words. Where you really find out about adult illiteracy is when adults fail at easy literacy tasks like keeping a diary, like making an appointments diary, or making a list Things that involve very elementary literacy skills, but they are literacy, looking at a map, Mm. you know, that sort of thing. That's when you find out that people have this inability. And, of course, it holds people back dreadfully. And a lot of the people who can't read and write very well are actually very intelligent people. That's another reason why you sometimes don't know that they're illiterate.
0: Rianne, is this an area that the libraries in Cardiff are working at counteracting or countering?
2: Funnily enough, I was in Ely Library and a young gentleman came up and said he couldn't read or write and needed support. So there are literacy areas that we do tackle. We do book clubs and we do read aloud. And from a very early age, we you know we engage in the summer reading challenges. So it's a welcoming place where people who do have problems can come in and we can support them. In that, but it is quite shocking to have someone to yes. come and say that they can't read. You know, it's,
0: I suppose it's, the library isn't necessarily the obvious destination for someone who has issues. No, it's not embarrassment or no. vulnerability around literacy.
2: The library is there to support people. And because it's become more of a community hub now, we do have people coming in who may not have come in before. And we try and break down all the barriers. And we have people who are specifically there to help people with their, if English is their second language or if they need to have sort of classes, we do try and support people. So, yes.
0: That's fantastic. Ken, if you forgive me, I'll read one last little section from Pillars of the Earth. Again, this is Tom Builder, but around your writing of it, this was another passage that struck me. This is Tom Builder around the transcendence of his job. Tom was enjoying building the wall. It was so long since he had done this that he had forgotten the deep tranquility that came from laying one stone upon another in perfect straight lines and watching the structure grow. These stones would be part of Tom's cathedral, And this wall that was now only a foot high would eventually reach for the sky. Tom felt he was at the beginning of the rest of his life. Again, not to get too meta and overstate this, but after all the research, the outlining, etc., do you experience this still after all these years? Do you get those moments you must do when you're constructing these novels?
1: Yes, I do. I often think when I'm writing about how many people are going to read this. That does two things. It means that when I write something that I think is good, I think, yes, they'll love that. That'll bring tears to their eyes or that'll make their pulses race Mm. or something. But it also means that if I do something that's not so good, I think about all those millions of people and I think, no, no, I can't let this go out. I've got to do this chapter again. It won't enchant them. They'll go, oh, well, that was all right. So, I do it again. So, yes, I have that feeling of satisfaction because every sentence I'm writing is like one of Tom Builder's stones. Mm. And if I do it well, it's exhilarating. The joy is still just as fresh as it was. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yes. But if I lay that stone wrong, then I've got to knock it down and start again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You write very engagingly in the Notre Dame book of Victor Hugo. You've mentioned him already and, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, as we often think of it, his novel. You say that Hugo had written something like 180,000 words in four and a half months. I mean, it's astonishing. Yes. Prodigious output.
1: Terrific. Absolutely terrific. Mind you, authors of this period had no qualms about digressing for several pages about something that was on their mind. Balzac's the worst. Balzac will, at the drop of a hat, in one of his stories, there's about 20 pages about the modern girl. I mean, the modern girl in 1850, obviously, but still, the same stuff. And it's absolute stodge, you know. And there's quite a lot in Notre-Dame de Paris, in The Hunchback of Notre-Dame, there's quite a lot of not really very pertinent digression. Tangent. <laughs> yes, tangential, very good.
0: <laughs> and your little withering of Scott in... Walter Scott in comparison, which I have to say I can sympathize with <laughs> you on that. But I'm not I wouldn't claim to be a historical fiction expert. I was very struck by the short quote from Notre Dame that you put at the front of the book. I wondered whether if you wouldn't mind reading that. It's very eye-catching prose from Victor Hugo.
1: It was one of those spring days that is so gentle and pretty that all Paris treats it like a Sunday, crowding the squares and boulevards. During such days of clear skies, warmth and peace, there comes a supreme moment at which to appreciate the portal of Notre Dame. It is when the sun, already sinking, shines almost directly on the cathedral. Its rays, more and more horizontal, slowly leave the pavement and climb the vertical façade, to highlight the countless carvings against their shadows until the great rose window, like the eye of a
0: cyclops, is reddened as if by reflections from a furnace. That's fantastic. It's an appropriately fiery end note. You're about to embark on a friendship tour of European cities. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, there are four of us, and we all have millions of readers... In Europe, who read us in their own languages. And the four authors are me and Lee Child, Jojo Moyes, and Kate Moss. And we all feel embarrassed, mortified, that the message our country is sending to Europe is we don't want to be part of you anymore. We do. We love having all those readers in different languages, and of course many who read us in English, you know, which is not their native language. And we just hate the idea that they might be feeling spurned by us. They've supported us, they've bought our books, they've written us fan letters, and so we want to make a gesture that says, we really cherish you. So the four of us are going on a short book tour We're going to uh, Milan, Madrid, Berlin and Paris in November. And we're just going to appear in theatres and talk about our work and answer questions as we always do, and also involve authors from the countries that we're visiting in the evening, just to tell those people that there may be be a lot of people in our country who don't want to be part of Europe, but
0: but we do. Yeah, good for you. That's fantastic. And speaking of Politics, or the slightly political, and you are a political animal, what have you made of the ongoing recent closures of libraries?
1: It's terribly, terribly short-sighted, isn't it? The most valuable thing a country can have is an educated workforce. And this is what libraries are about. Even if you only come here to borrow books for pleasure, you're still improving your literacy skills. You may not think you're doing it because you're just having a good time. But you are improving your literacy skills. And it's not just about books anymore in libraries, as Rianne should be telling us this, not me, but there are many people in our country who don't have access to a computer at home. Suppose they're looking for work. You've always got to apply on a website. You've always got to go to a website to get the details. And it's really become a little bit difficult to function in our country if you don't have access to the Internet. And plus, of course, people need to learn those skills that you use when you're using a computer. We don't have to invent something. We don't have to say, oh, we'll do some research and have a program for educating. No, we've got it. We've got this fantastic network of libraries and dedicated people who run them, who are idealistic about the whole idea of a nation that is literate and educated and computer literate and all of that. This is here already. And it seems to me kind of insane that we're
0: sort of inch by inch, bit by bit, closing it down. Yes. And Rhiann, this is a hub, as are other libraries in Cardiff. Indeed, we can hear the Goldie sing-along monthly group trooping in Mm. right now. And when we arrived as well, there were people who were doing a workshop on jobs or employment, and the computers were all being used. But you still have a good number of books, which is so important. But. As I understand it, most of the libraries in the area are now hubs. Is that correct? Um,
2: there is one Carnegie Library in Cottes, which is sort of a historic centre as well as a library. So they don't have anything like the dementia clubs or the Goldies. Or, so that's one place we have that's completely a library. But yes, the hubs are are always looking to break down barriers of loneliness. It's a place, a welcoming place. We have knitting groups, you know, we have book clubs as well and read uh, loud groups so yes it's become more of a community hall type place but buzzing but at the core of it is the library service and that's the main aspect of this library at least and
0: it's great also walking in that the building which is from 19 it's 1910 is that
2: 1907. It Sorry,
0: 1907, yeah. and it's yeah. painted in suffragette colours. Yes, I don't know
2: gray. if that's coincidental, but it's really nice. Yeah. So.
0: But Carnegie established the libraries in the areas on the understanding that local taxes or contributions mm. would sustain them, and obviously there is a statutory obligation on local authorities to provide a library service so there is a cohesion there in terms of policy or how these places are are run yes how would you say the library system or network is at the moment or has been recently in wales
2: It's been difficult because, you know, it's from being standalone libraries, we've had to incorporate all these different things, you know, and serve things like bin bags or bus passes and all the services have been mounted up. So it is totally different from just being a library. And I
0: did notice right at the front, desk the food bank contribution stand as well which is a a sign of the times or oh yes or sums up you know a lot of the backdrop of why we're having these problems with libraries and also
2: we've been a point system where people can drop off school uniforms and then they go to our book distribution place and somebody comes and sorts it all out and then takes it to families who can't afford school uniforms. So, wow, yeah,
0: brilliant.
2: there's a lot of things going on to assist people. And a lot of the libraries are going to be blood pressure hubs, you know, where people can go in and have their blood pressure tested. And it's just...
0: Turns like your blood pressure might need to be tested <laughs> after all that.
2: Yes thing that raises my blood pressure is giving out refuse sucks you know yeah, I'm sure. yes I'd rather be giving out books yeah giving yeah. out
0: books back to oh, books yeah. all right I'm gonna ask as we're in the library Ken I always like to know are you someone who has as as ordered bookshelves as your plots are uh, well ordered and thought through in the construction of your library is it as meticulous and strong foundations etc as the cathedrals that you write on I work in a library, but my
1: library at home is not big enough for my books, so the, the whole house has <laughs> be- became a library. I have novels alphabetically by author and history books chronologically by subject. Okay. So that makes it easy to find. I do, of course, periodically run out of space because for every book, the last book... Column of Fire, we actually counted and it was about 250 books that I bought and read or consulted during the writing. So I actually got to the stage where I have to throw books away or give them away, go to the Oxfam shop usually. But I can't get a bigger house. (laughs) I've got quite a big house already. And I can find what I want. Other than history and fiction they 're then by subject. well, reference books, of course, are a big thing, or at least they used to be. Mm. I used to consult the Encyclopedia Britannica pretty much once a day, and i haven 't looked at it for decades now it 's just so easy to look something up on the internet. The 20 volume Oxford dictionary I still use it 's the only real dictionary for me. Yeah. And one or two other reference books. Atlases, of course. The map is not the same. Even if you've got quite a big screen computer, it's not big enough for the map that I want. I want a huge map. I'm toying with an idea for a new book, and I've just recently traced the route of an illegal migrant from Lake Chad in sub-Saharan Africa to Sicily. Now, I needed a huge map for that. I mean, it needed the biggest possible... Because if I do this book, and I might not do this... Or I might do the book and not this part of it. But it's very important to know the details of this journey almost mile by mile because there's going to be drama all the time. This is an illegal enterprise that they're involved in. We know because we read in the papers all the time about the horrendous dangers facing these people in camps and all that sort of thing. So there you are. The internet was just no good for me on that. I needed a paper map that was bigger than my dining table.
0: <laughs> really granular. Do you do you read e-books? Do you like e-books?
1: I do occasionally read them. Yes, I have a preference, like most people of my generation, for an actual physical book. But I've used them quite often, and I don't have a problem with it. It's just not quite the pleasure that I get. And I also like, frankly, I like the way my books look. Yeah, you know, it's they look, look pretty
0: great on the stand outside here in the library. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> at home. Or in a bookshop or in a library, I like to look at that great big bookcase and think of all the pleasure and information and enlightenment there is on those shelves. And it's all for me. I can have it all. You know, I can borrow the books or I can buy them from the bookshop or I can take my own books off the shelf. What a great world we live in. And of course, I'm conscious of this because of writing about the Middle Ages so much. When a book was a rare thing, in the Pillars of the Earth, the library at Kingsbridge Monastery has 12 books yes. <laughs> and they're very proud of them. You know, so now contrast that with what we have. And if we're in a public library, it's free. And if we're in a bookshop, it's not that expensive. The book is about a tenner. It makes you feel privileged to live in the century that we live in.
0: Well, on that note, I would like to ask, if you wouldn't mind, Ken, and with Rhianne, to browse the shelves of your old childhood library. <laughs> you might still be on the system. You never know. And see if there isn't something that you'd like to borrow or take away. That'd be fun. Whatever you like, an old favourite or uh, something new. This is the serendipity of these places. Yeah. You might have to brave the sing-along crowd out there. But
2: I think we've actually got a school in as well.
0: All the better. So All the better, yeah. Perfect. Right. A local Perfect. school. Perfect soundtrack yeah. for, yeah. for your browsing. Thank yeah. you, thank you both very, very much, though. Pleasure. Enjoyed it.
1: The commitments. Mm.
0: Great movie. Fabulous movie, great then, movie, great novel, great movie. <laughs> Alan Parker. And I haven't read this. I haven't read that actually. Smile. Is that his most recent?
2: Would you
0: like to take? Yes, it I care? think it is. Twenty seventeen. Yeah, yes, I think I could read this
1: on the train going home. Yeah. Good okay. first sentence. I stayed up at the bar a few times, but I didn't want the barman thinking that I needed someone to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> it was that was good. good. because he obviously does need someone. Yes. <laughs> I quite like sentences that mean the opposite of what yeah. they say. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So do we need to go check out, I oh, out. Smile by Roddy Doyle. Yeah. Wonderful. Great. Yes, yeah, so I should think this will take me all the way to Paddington. Perfect. Thank you for listening to this, the first ever ex-Libris. Let this be the start of a beautiful friendship. Indeed, if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is you get your brain food that way not only will you keep up with the podcast but you'll also help us champion libraries to find out more about the authors and venues as well as more on libraries and independent bookshops please visit our website www.exlibrispodcast.com you can also get updates from me on twitter and instagram find me at that ben holden write a really perceptive nice review or shout loud enough about this episode on social media, and you could even win a signed copy of Ken's modern classic, The Pillars of the Earth. Believe me, they are like gold dust. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself with Grundy LaZembra. Its music is composed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with The Light Bulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning providing opportunities to shine.